title for the sermon tonight. It's not the snappiest of titles, and uh, I'm hoping that it won't incur the same uh, effect as uh, Ken Clark induced on Sir Desmond uh, Swain uh, this week. There's a great deal of hilarity uh, across the country when uh, one of the MPs in the House of Commons was caught napping when Ken Clark was droning on during uh, a Brexit debate in the House of Commons. He said later on that he had been up very early in the morning and had been swimming at 5.30 before coming to the House of Commons and so had been pretty tired. Uh, And we have to be, I think, sympathetic towards him because... uh, by the sound of what I heard, it wasn't the most uh, enlivening of speeches. By all accounts, though, Paul was concerned that uh, things in Corinth were actually uh, on the other end of the scale. They were rather too exciting. Uh, There was no chance that you would have uh, incurred this fate if you had been in the church in Corinth. Uh, There was all kinds of things going on. People standing up to speak, to deliver a revelation that they had. People were speaking in uh, languages that they hadn't known uh, from birth, hadn't been taught, and uh, others didn't understand either. Uh, There was a cacophony of noise going on, and Paul is concerned that things should be uh, more orderly, should be something which reflects the orderliness of God, who is a God of peace and a God of order. And certainly one of Paul's concerns was that the church should distance itself from the kind of pagan worship that went on in some of the temples in Corinth. One of the chief gods that they worshipped in Corinth was the god Bacchus. Uh, And he was known as the god of madness. And the worship of Bacchus involved dancing and drinking and sexual promiscuity, uh, worshipping in varying degrees of undress. Uh, there was all kinds of uh, frenetic behaviour. And they believed that it was only when you were worked up into a frenzy that you could communi- commune with their God. And Paul is saying, well, our God, the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, is very, very different from that. He's not a God of chaos. And so the worship of God's people should reflect the character of God. Throughout this section that runs from chapter 12, Paul has directed the Corinthians to seek uh, the gifts which will edify the congregation. And that means for Paul that prophecy is to be given priority over tongue-speaking. Prophecy is more geared for edifying others. Tongue-speaking when there's no interpreter doesn't edify anyone other than the speaker. Tongues with interpretation would be uh, like to prophecy, and people would understand and be edified. Now, Paul doesn't want to forbid the use of these revelatory gifts. Uh, He tells them to seek it, to seek them, but he is concerned that the focus of the church Uh, should not be on the the ones which seem more dramatic like tongues, but should be on those that edify uh, the saints. And now in the the second part of the chapter that we're looking at from verse 26, Paul is turning to see how 
the, the gifts should be employed in an orderly way. The key is verse 40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, as we look at this uh, passage, uh, particularly the second part, we have to say we're not looking at a template, uh, a blueprint as to how a church is to be organized today. Uh, we've already, as we've been addressing the, the question, are tongues and prophecy for today, we've seen that they fitted into a particular period in Revelation history, redemptive history, uh, where there was no uh, body of apostolic writings. And so Revelation coming direct from God had an, an important place at this time. Uh, we know that the, the revelatory gifts did in fact die out after the completion of the New Testament. Uh, but apart from that, Paul uh, isn't giving us a, a picture. This is how church should take place. Because for one thing, there are elements which are omitted uh, in his description, elements such as preaching and as the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We know that they were uh, a regular part of the gathering of God's people. And when we come uh, in our Bibles, it's a very important thing to, to learn to be on the lookout for places which are simply describing what happened as opposed to telling us what we ought to do. There, there are parts of the Bible, especially in the narrative, the historical books, where we're not necessarily being given an example to follow. Uh, maybe something to avoid, in fact. Uh, and we need to distinguish between uh, what is simply being described and the times when we're told, this is what you must do. And Paul, of course, is concerned. There are things that uh, are, are not going well here. And he wants uh, there to be an order in their worship. Now, the extreme, of course, would be to say, well, that's the case that has no relevance to us today. And that would be a big mistake uh, to consign uh, chapters like this to the, the museum. In the Old Testament, uh, we recognize that there are parts of the, the law which don't function in our regular life as Christians, like the ceremonial law and the civil law of, of Israel, but we take principles from these parts of the law and we apply them to our lives today. And we do the same here as we look at this, this example of worship in first century Corinth. What are the principles that are applicable to our life today? And we can summarize these as orderly participation, verses 26 to 33, order between the genders, uh, verses 34 to 36, and order, uh, 37 to 40, order that is subject to apostolic teaching. So then, for the first of these, uh, orderly participation. Uh, when Paul uh, opens saying, what shall we say then, brothers? He's, of course, referring to all that has been said in relation to the use and the abuse of spiritual gifts in the church. We might have expected Paul to say, just scrap them all together. They've caused so much chaos in Corinth, you'd be better off without them. But he doesn't do that. Uh, he uh, calls on them to give priority to the edifying gifts 
and he underlines the importance of intelligibility. Uh, and then he gives us a template for how the services at Corinth should be organized. So, as we were saying at the beginning, the, a Corinthian service uh, before Paul called it to order would have been a cacophony of noise. It would have been like the Tower of Babel, uh, all of these different languages. It was a real scene of confusion. And so when Paul says, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. These must be done for the strengthening of the church. So everybody has something to contribute. Everybody has got something that they want to bring. Uh, the word for a hymn is actually a psalmist. It's a, the word uh, sometimes translated psalm. Uh, but it the, the word has got quite a wide range, and it probably simply refers to uh, a Holy Spirit-inspired composition that someone brings. Charles Hodge, the commentator, uh, says this can hardly mean one of the psalms of the Old Testament, but something prepared or suggested for the occasion. Uh, similarly, someone will come prepared with a word of instruction, a doctrine to be uh, expounded. The revelation would be a prophecy from God. Uh, a tongue uh, is an address or a prayer in an unknown language, uh, or someone may come with an interpretation. The contributions uh, if you're going to bring a tongue, then there are only, he says, to be uh, two or three at most, and they must always have an interpretation. Um, if an interpreter is, avail is, is not available, then the tongue speaker should keep silent. It's quite interesting, actually, that, uh, in churches which uh, believe in the continuance of gifts, that these rules are very seldom complied with. Very often you have a kind of... Uh, uh, an undercurrent of tongue speaking. There is no interpretation. Prophecies, again, are to be given in an orderly way. Two or three are to prophesy at most. And the others were to judge what was said. Why would they judge what is said? Well, what they're doing here is they're judging whether or not this is a true prophet of God because the stakes were high. Uh, the Old Testament said, in fact, that if somebody was a false prophet, they were to be stoned. You didn't get off with having a, a prophecy that was a little off. It, had to, it was a word from God, therefore it had to be exactly correct in, in what it said regarding uh, the future. Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. Uh, John warns his readers, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Uh, so these people who are, the prophet gets up, the prophet delivers his prophecy, and those who are judging aren't saying, oh, well, we quite like that, you know, let's go along with that. That's not what they're doing. They're adjudicating as to whether this is a true prophet or not. Now, Paul anticipates that someone might feel that the, the Holy Spirit is communicating with them, uh, but somebody else is speaking. So, do they feel that they are impelled by the Spirit to speak? No, says Paul, that would, that would be to revert to this disorderliness. Uh, the spirits of the prophets are under the control of prophets. Uh, you remain quiet. 
until the person who's speaking has finished. And then uh, you speak. So the, the overall impression then, although it's incomplete, is a lively, dynamic early Christian gathering. Uh, there's a high degree of participation. Uh, indeed, uh, verse 26 seems to indicate everybody was involved uh, in some way. So, uh, how, how do we relate to that? How does that apply uh, to uh, a modern situation? Well, the main difference is that this is descriptive of a time when the revelator, revelatory gifts were alive in the church. Uh, and this, the context is critical. This is the apostolic era. Uh, and we have to bear that in mind as we move from Corinth to Coat Bridge. There is that big difference. No one, for example, no one has a right in our services of worship to stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord. They would be ruled out of order if they did that, because uh, that uh, does not pertain to our, our day, to our understanding of uh, where we stand in, in God's redemptive history. But just as we apply principles from the Old Testament, so we apply principles from, from here. And uh, one of the things which we take on board is the, the strong element of deploying the gifts of God's people. Uh, ensuring that everyone's spiritual gifts are utilized is an abiding principle in the life of the church. Uh, sometimes that happens more fully than we actually realize. Think about, uh, think about our current practice in praise. Uh, what's going on when we are praised in, in terms of singing to God? Well, uh, we have some of our number uh, will lead as presenters. Some of our number are musicians and, and they'll lead the accompaniment of the praise. And every one of us who is singing, uh, we're involved in a ministry of instruction because our singing is vertical, but it's also horizontal. And that's an interesting thing. Uh, to bear in mind as we sing. Uh, for example, we have uh, Ephesians 5, verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Then there's the reading of the Scriptures and, and prayer. The reading of the Scriptures is something that requires good attention to the meaning uh, Paul tells Timothy to, to, to give himself, to give a close attention to the public reading of the Scriptures. It's a very important part of public worship. And some are more gifted at publicly reading the Bible than others, and similarly with public prayer. Now, these are not activities that are reserved for the eldership. The preaching of the Word is to be restricted to the teaching elder or minister or on an occasional basis to other elders and that on the basis that the elders of the church are to be apt to teach. First Timothy 3 uh, verse 2. 
And then in addition to, 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 to those, to the elders, there are those who are probationer ministers or potential elders uh, who may also preach on an occasional basis. So there's that appropriate way for doing things in a fitting and orderly way, making adjustments for our own context. And then uh, sometimes the, the gifts that people have are, are better employed in a, a smaller situation. And, and that's why the community groups uh, in a church like ours are so important, because they, they enable that greater degree of participation than is appropriate or feasible on a Sunday. So there's the element of uh, involvement, of participation, and then the, the concern for orderliness. Uh, it's almost as though you have something of attention. You have the, the dynamism of, of uh, spiritual gifts being employed and, and the recognition we all have these spiritual gifts. And then there's the importance that our worship should be orderly. And we can swing either to one end or to the other. But in terms of the orderliness of, of worship, uh, our spiritual forebears would always have stressed the need to prepare ourselves for worship so that we don't simply uh, burst into church uh, with all kinds of thoughts in our heads, preoccupied by the the, the, the rush that it's been for us to get there, but there's been some spiritual preparation in our hearts before we come. And so it's good to be in time, in good time uh, for, for public worship, so that we can settle ourselves uh, in, the, in the house of God and to, to try to ensure that uh, we have a minimum of distractions that would pull people's attention away from what is central in our worship, which is the preached word of God so that we can give it uh, our whole attention. The next element is uh, possibly the one, I guess, that grabbed your attention most when Paul tells uh, us that women are to keep silent in the church. As in all the churches, women should remain silent. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Now, straight away, we are to, uh, up front, submit to the Word of God. If the Word of God is saying that, that women are, are not to utter a, a single word when they come in the doors of the church, that's the end of the story. That's what we submit to. Uh, we, we're not in the business of rationalizing away the Word of God. Uh, and far be it from me to say what would transpire if that was to happen, you know. But the, the, the question is, is that what Paul is actually uh, saying? Now, some churches, uh, whilst not enforcing total silence on women in church, will not allow them to speak in public. And that understanding goes for praying in prayer meetings. Now, that position is at least consistent uh, otherwise, to distinguish between worship that's held in the church uh, building, the, the kind of main sanctuary where women are supposed to be invisible and silent, and worship held in the church hall where they can pray and talk, is the worst kind of Jesuitical hair splitting. 
And the real problem is that we know from what Paul has already said that women actually did pray and did prophesy in Corinth, in public. Uh, chapter 11, verse 5, uh, tells us that every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's just as though her head were shaved. Now, yes, the, the point at issue is how, uh, in a culturally uh, sensitive way, women are to acknowledge uh, male headship by the way they uh, deport themselves, by what they wear. That's, that's the, the issue at stake there. But nevertheless, uh, it's quite telling that uh, at the beginning of the chapter, verse 2, Paul says that uh, he commends them for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings, literally the traditions, just as I pass on to you. So at least the Corinthians are, are keeping to the traditions that he's passed on to them. And then, uh, without uh, so much as, as breaking stride, he goes on to mention that, uh, you know, by the way, when your women are, are, are praying and prophesying, make sure they, uh, they cover their heads. Because that's an appropriate way, in your context, of acknowledging uh, the, the headship of, of men that are in the gathering. So, not only are women praying and prophesying in church, but the apostle is in agreement with this. So there's a problem, isn't there? What, what do we make then of the injunction in chapter 14, where Paul says that women are to keep silent? Well, we work on the principle that the Bible does not contradict itself. Uh, even supposing these two um, commands were in different books of the Bible, it would be no, uh, no bigger a problem. Uh, it's the one author all the way through the Bible. The Holy Spirit has authored the whole book. But here, Paul, the human author, uh, has said both things. So there are a couple of ways, I think, of harmonizing what Paul is saying uh, in these two places. And one of them would be to assume that the women... Uh, who would probably be seated together, were discussing amongst themselves uh, some disputed matter of teaching. Now, there was already a whole lot of noise going on. Uh, people were, were speaking in, in, in tongues, maybe several at the same time. Somebody was getting up, standing up, giving a prophecy and so on. And then you had uh, the women over there were in heated debate about some aspect of the preaching. And Paul tells them to keep silent, cut out this, uh, this disgraceful uh, public debate during worship. And, and if you need to, 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 to find the answers to these things, ask your husbands when you, when you go home. That's one possibility. Another possibility that is that what Paul is saying about women keeping silent relates to the assessment of the prophecies that were being made. Chapter 14, verse 29, Paul had said, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. And so then when he says in verse 34, let the women keep silent. The other possibility, and it's the one I, I, I'm going for, I think that what he's saying is that uh, the, the women are not to take part in the assessment of these prophecies. And... I mean, it's easy to see why, because um, many of the prophecies would be made by 
men, and it's possibly even that some of them uh, would find that some of the women, uh, if they were to assess what was being said, would be assessing what their husband had said uh, in prophecy. And so it would run counter to the, the Bible's teaching on, on male headship in the home and in the church. I think that's the more likely reason, and it would explain why Paul uses such strong language. It is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So there's a harmony uh, between uh, the two. Uh, Paul is insisting that there shouldn't be gender confusion in church. Again, when, when we're thinking these things through, the, the, the fundamental text, the foundational text is 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And that in turn arises out of a principle of, of male headship which is grounded in the creation. Uh, Paul goes on to say, for Adam was formed first, not Eve. And that's why the, the issue is different from the, the question of head coverings. With head coverings, it's a matter of cultural context. What is it that signals uh, submissiveness, submission? In Corinth, it's wearing a head covering. Or the way you adorned your, you, you had your hair up, whatever. But in terms of uh, male headship, it's grounded in the, the order at creation itself. And so the teaching role, the, the role of elder, which carries authority and the need uh, occasionally at least to teach other men, uh, is restricted to those who are so gifted uh, in the church, males who are so gifted. In the charismatic situation in Corinth, for a woman to prophesy didn't violate male headship because she was simply acting as a channel of divine revelation. But on the other hand, she should not uh, sit in judgment on the prophecies of others as that would usurp the principle. So, hopefully, some clarity. But nevertheless, we're left with a great clash with our own culture because the received wisdom, very much in our day, is uh, what we call egalitarianism. So, it's a belief. Uh, which, of course, we, we, we subscribe to it. Men and women are equal because we are both made in the image of God. So there's no question, no one is ever, I hope, ever uh, debating that. But the Bible teaches that uh, we are complementary. Uh, egalitarianism goes on to say that uh, because we're equal, uh, what men can do, women can and should do, and vice versa, what women can do, men uh, can and should do. Let's recognize that, that there might be some roles which are, are fitting for men but not women and vice versa. And again it has to be acknowledged that, that there are some Christian teachers uh, and churches which hold to that egalitarian viewpoint, you know, reversible role within the church. How can they, how can they do that? Well, what, what they do is they would say, well, we've got these difficult texts, but we have texts like, uh, all, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And, and therefore, uh, we have to interpret everything in the light uh, of the fact that there are no distinctions between 
that the sex is any longer. And, and so, uh, you know, difficult verses like the ones that we've been grappling with and harmonizing are just thrown out the window. You know, they're, they're not uh, in agreement with the, the overall text. But when Paul said that about uh, all being one, he's speaking about salvation. There are no distinctions in regard to uh, race or status or gender as regards salvation. But the same apostle who taught that also taught that there are some offices within the church uh, which are, are male only and that there are some things which are, are gender specific. And we call that complementarian. The idea that we complement one another as men and women. I think it's helpful to think of what uh, God said regarding Adam the creation. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is suited to him. And, you know, if we're honest men, that means that there is some kind of a deficit in the male that the female makes up. So there is this complementing of a lack in the male. And it brings uh, a new appreciation of the other. There's not a bland uniformity, but there's a, a complementarity. Now, unfortunately, if you listen to some Christians who subscribe to that position, I do, uh, you'd think that all that was involved in being uh, complementarian, in, in trying to follow through the Bible, is keeping women well out of the public view. You know, Preventing them from uh, being uh, up front in church or saying anything in a worship setting, including praying. That's a very negative view of complementarianism. And it also, it reduces leadership to uh, being an upfront performer rather than the servant leadership which takes place uh, in the non upfront. Uh, areas of church life. So to recap, women should not teach men, and therefore only men, acknowledged by the leadership, uh, preach in our church and lead community groups, for example. That's how it works out uh, in our own context. Uh, but women can and should pray in a public worship setting, and they can read the scripture, and they can lead the praise. There's no reason why we shouldn't have uh, female presenters. They can teach young people and younger women. In fact, uh, women in the church can do everything that uh, a non-ordained man can do in the church. Final point is, everything is to be regulated by apostolic authority. Paul closes with a warning. He anticipates that uh, people in Corinth are likely to kick back at his instruction. And so he says, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Now, this is important uh, for our understanding of, of Scripture and its authority. Paul is, uh, is laying claim uh, to his words being God's words. What Paul says in Scripture... The words of Paul that are inscripturated 
are none less than God's words. Now that, that gives a lie to people who, who will say, well, I, I follow Jesus' words. I take my teachings from the lips of Jesus rather than Paul. Paul was a crusty old bachelor. He didn't have much time for women anyway. And uh, it's Jesus that I go with. Well, it would do to pit Jesus against Paul because uh, what, what we, we have here is what we have uh, throughout Scripture, that the, the words which the Holy Spirit inspired through human agents, whether it be Paul or John or James, are the very words of God. So uh, we, have to, we have to acknowledge that. We have to submit to that, even when it's difficult for us and when it runs against the grain of our culture. Let's also say this, we are not to go beyond what the apostles instruct. Restricting women, uh, for example, from public prayer, is an illustration of overreach. Uh, it's not what Paul is teaching here. It is pushing the protective fence of complementarity into the neighbor's garden, if you like. When you do that, as you would find if you push your fence into your neighbor's garden, you create tension, resentment, frustration. By being more restrictive than Scripture requires, you end up with a tension which leads to the overthrow of the very principle that you were zealous for. That's why it's important to, uh, to be submissive, but to go no further than what Scripture requires. And complementarity is about, yes, it's about recognizing gender differences, but it can sometimes be, uh, in some situations, more about empowering women to use their spiritual giftings in areas where they're better suited than men. So we have to hold these two principles together. Male headship, yes, the utilization of the spiritual <coughs> gifts of all, and we probably have a bit to go in the second of these, if we're honest. Uh, we could harness, we could utilize the gifts of women far better than we do in the life of our church. Just to be specific, be concrete, why not? Our Deacon's Court, I'm sure, could benefit immensely from the contributions of, of women in lots of different ways. Uh, why is it that... Uh, if we ever referred or asked maybe to comment on the, the colour of the paint or something like that in a refurbishment. And really, if we are serious about uh, making something of our, of our infrastructure and being ambitious in, in our, our, our church extension, then uh, we need to be uh, proactive in involving the spiritual gifts and the energies of the, the ladies within our fellowship. Uh, and similarly, uh, with something like mercy ministry, that's something where we, uh, we need to have uh, some of the, the, those of you who have got good contacts with people who are struggling, feeding them in uh, to the, the direction of how we travel with our mercy ministry. Uh, we always run the risk when we're seeking to be faithful to, to Scripture and 
leadership within the church. We are always susceptible to being misunderstood and caricatured by a cynical world that doesn't really want to uh, understand our reasons why. We don't really want to have unnecessary baggage and obstacles. We're uh, reviewing our website just now. We had a, a, a visitor uh, to the, the church recently in, in another matter, and his business required him to have a look at our, our website. And uh, he went to the Who's Who page on our website and commented on the invisibility of women in our congregation. What did we present to the world? To anybody who wanted to find out what we were like as, as Hope Church, Cote Bridge, uh, we had uh, a rogues gallery of uh, middle-aged plus uh, men uh, staring out at the world. We don't want to pursue the world's agenda. That's the, the third way. And the way is of apostolic command. Uh, and it does empower women. And it does make them visible in the church. And it does remove unnecessary uh, offence to those who would come and meet with Jesus. May God grant his understanding and meet submission to his word. Amen. I'll close with a, a psalm, a psalm which, uh, in uh, its course, uh, does uh, dwell upon the, the, the women of faith. In an Old Testament context, the Lord announced his sovereign world. A mighty crowd took up the shout, and many women spread the news. See, kings and armies put to rout. They leave the fruits of battle's toil at home. The women share the spoil. But stand and sing to God. The Lord on earth, this song.